Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My dad, I'm the oldest of four kids. My dad was a butcher. He saved money for all of us. He invested in the markets. And I think that's part of it too, is I, my dad would always talk to us about the stocks that he bought for us. And at the end of the day, you know, my son knows all of these things. I talk to him about it. I don't necessarily show him my bank statements, but he gets it. I think it's really important. Like I said, I think just think it's important to talk to your kids about money. People are more willing to talk about sex than they are about money. Veteran personal finance influencer Lauren Young on pandemic economics, shipping a kid off to college, yet more of the work from home, new normal, so much for hot back summer, shedding a tear for the departed business magazines of yesteryear, and much, much more. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. Joining me from her work-from-home bureau out in Brooklyn, New York, is none other than Lauren Young of Thomson Reuters. She was previously wealth and money editor. Now she's an editor for special projects. Any way you look at it, Lauren has been in professional journalism for, what, 30 years now? Oh, please, Robin. Why are you making me so old? No, uh, I haven't. She... I'm not that old. I'm not that old. But I've been, How are you? But I've been around for a couple decades. How about that? How are you? I'm okay. I mean, I'm tired. I'm weary. Uh, this work from home thing is just not my jam. I'm a very social person and I miss the office. I miss my colleagues. And, uh, you know, I just, it's like being at home is thankfully we have a roof over our head. It's a beautiful place, but yeah, I need to get out and about. Let me understand this. Like many others, you were expecting a hot vax fall right? You were going to be inoculated. You had the vaccine. You were going to go back to your office in glorious Times Square in the center of it all. So glorious. You were the center of, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't happen. It definitely didn't happen. I am still working from home. Um, we just have been told, you know, it's looking like January for our group. And um, I will be trying to go back to the office um, a couple of days a week. But I will be honest with you, the prospect of like walking around with a mask in my office and not really having my team around me doesn't really feel very appetizing or interesting. I, you know, I'm, I want to go back to the office for the social aspect and also just to not be like working in my bedroom, for example, <laughs> like that's not good. That's not healthy. So, and then when we're all home and thankfully my son, who is a, a senior in high school in a New York city public school, um, has gone back to school this week and that's really exciting. And five days a week is the plan. So we'll see, but I'm really happy for him to be back in the classroom. We're going to get to this and then some, but first I want to ask you while you're talking about this and this broader torpor and people still worried about children going back to school and people worried about the indefinite work from home and as you know, restaurants and, and other service sector areas, I mean, bus drivers from school not showing up. And yet, 
the tech-heavy NASDAQ is approaching 16,000. The Dow is at 35,000. Remember, there was that notorious book from 1999, Dow 36,000. What gives? <sighs> so many things. So many things give. How, how much time have we got? Uh, do we have? You've uh, got all the time. You've got 52 decades? minutes. <laughs> you know, look, we know that consumer spending has certainly been lifted by um, all of the pandemic incentives that have been given to people to keep them afloat. And what's really interesting, Robin, and I'm sure, you know, we could talk a lot about this, is that the millennials I know and the Gen Z I know who are not currently um, working are just banking the pandemic um, money that they've been receiving, which is really interesting. So what's going to happen when they do go out into the workforce, into the world, start renting apartments, buying cars, all those fun things. But for now, you know, I, I know a woman who was a waitress and then the pandemic happened. She lost her job and she's just been banking all the unemployment money. Seriously. So that's not a trope, that whole six, September 6th. Enhanced unemployment is keep keeping people away from the grind. I mean, that's all supposed to have dissipated already. Well, it is dissipating. And um, so it'll be really, I mean, there are what, 10 million jobs right now unfilled, which is crazy. And the labor shortage is real. You know, I know restaurants that aren't, aren't open on Mondays because they don't have the, the workforce or you even see the signs like, please be patient with us. You know, we're very understaffed and particularly like, Robin, you know this, I spend my summers on the Jersey Shore and now that the kids who were there working for the summer have gone back to college, there's no one to fill those jobs. So it's really interesting. It's a really interesting dynamic. It's just, but you, to get back to your general question, people saving money, people spending money um, is good, right? What's bad is inflation, which is crazy. And just the supply chain issues that are going on. And, you know, the there's so much pent-up demand, like for a car, because there's no semiconductors and there are no cars. Try to rent a car this past summer. If you tried to rent a car, good luck if you wanted to travel the country because you couldn't go out of the country because you couldn't get out of the country. Uh, it was impossible to find a rental car. According to none other than Goldman Sachs, Wall Street's brass ring, 83% of small businesses are struggling to fill jobs. This is not a theoretical lament. You talk to every restaurant owner. You talk to every store owner. If we talk about fast food, gas stations, uh, busing tables, groceries, there's just this ongoing, we will hire anybody at this point. There are restaurants that I show up to like, hey, if you want to learn, I mean, you could try it one or two days a week. Worst thing happens, you wash dishes. I mean, it is true desperation. I wonder, and I ask you, especially where the conversation of inflation comes in, does this rubber hit the road when wages shoot up, say, past the minimum wage of 12, 14, 15, upward of $20 an hour. Right. Well, we saw um, that Amazon is raising uh, wages and certainly there are incentives. I know kids this summer were getting, you know, $1,000 signing bonuses, just high school kids just to work at a restaurant. I mean, imagine that. So I'm hoping that there will be kind of a great leveling. We talk about the great resignation and, and you know, the great reboot. But I'm wondering if there'll be a great reset. And I don't know the answer to that. I am definitely not an economist. But I'd like to think that things will even out at some point. Right now, we're still kind of riding the craziness. And and I mean, what's nuts is, and you mentioned it, is just how high the market has gone and why and who's lifting it, which is, you know, a lot of the tech stocks. Um, but I, I look at my retirement portfolio every once in a while. I've always trained myself, you know, I don't check things every day. But just today, I had to log on to my Vanguard account. I was like, what is that number? How, where, where did that 
money come from? What did I do? I did nothing. I mean, I was a long-term investor, so that was good. But it was very surprising to see what my account balance was given, you know, the state of the world. You know, you just talked about something that reminded me of my influential high school history professor, Professor Fast, talked about the leveling tendencies of the Great Depression and that a, a great reset like that, and you use the reset uh, metaphor yourself, uh, it's kind of a, a, an equalizer of sorts that everybody can feel like, okay, coming out of this, that we can feel the forces of creative destruction, and maybe you undo a lot of the income inequality that we saw in the Roaring Twenties. I'm amazed, Lauren, in that not only did we not see that coming out of the great financial crisis and the great recession of 2008, and coming out of that, income inequality was exacerbated and people with stocks and real estate did disproportionately better than people who were wage dependent. But the same thing seems to be happening again. Yes, you've had wage gains. Yes, there seems to be a creep up in in uh, uh, labor costs. But disproportionately, I mean, you look at the real estate market, it's never been harder to buy a starter home. You look at the stock market, there are five or six or seven trillion dollar market cap companies. I'm convinced that the K is more exacerbated than it's ever been. It's interesting that you say that, Robin. You, you mentioned a couple of things. So the 2008 downturn that we saw, the you know the financial crash, the financial engineering behind all of that, the underpinning of the markets and what what drove everything down, and you know lending money to people who couldn't afford to buy the homes that they bought all, of, and then just all the derivatives and everything that that made that happen. This is a little bit different. I mean, this is a global pandemic, which is really interesting because it's impacting people all around the world, but at different times. And at different levels based on vaccination and other things. And then I'm also thinking specifically about the real estate market, which you say, I mean, there is a supply and demand issue. There's just not enough supply. But think about all of these office buildings, Robin. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to be converted into residential real estate? Will they be rental properties? Because there's no way that people are going to be going back to the office five days a week. So what happens to like Literally, I'm looking at downtown Manhattan right now at the skyline, all of these empty buildings. The lights are on, by the way, which is interesting. Somebody's paying those bills nonetheless. But, you know, cities all over the country. And and then I love, uh, well, love is a strong word, but I'm really interested in kind of the great reset of, of demographics and how people are moving to more rural areas because they can do their jobs with a good Wi-Fi connection. And what does that mean for rural communities and their tax bases and and all of it. I mean, it's just maybe there is this leveling that we haven't ever seen before in this country. Now, you mentioned that the difference now is that there's markedly something not as systemic with banks making all of these liar loans and kind of passing the buck on, on uh, yeah, you know, subprime falafel. I know I mix metaphors there, as <laughs> I like to do. But but um, in this case, aren't you worried and, and the fund managers and the Wall Street people and the finance people that you talk to and the economists that, I mean, after all, all these office buildings and strip malls and everything were backed by banks, whether they were regional banks or national banks or mega regional banks. At what point do these assets, right now we're kind of subsisting on government aid and uh, you know COVID relief that the Fed and the Treasury signed off on to kind of get us through this haze. But when we finally do come back and people realize that broadly there are hundreds of millions of square feet of office space and property space that they don't need. Doesn't that recourse back to the banks and cause a financial crisis? Yes. And no, I mean, if the banks are really smart, though, and are ingenious about what they do with it, like in communities, 
letting artists use them as studio space, which then in turn, you know, there's the ripple effect of the coffee shop opening up and then the fancy boutique and then the art supply store and then the and then the university that wants a little, you know, location there to uh, have a graduate program or whatever it is. So there's and then a small business that starts as a result of having all that talent. So I do think, you know, there could be these little incubators too, if people are super creative about it. By the way, Robin, I just want to say to you, I have spent most of the pandemic in two places. Well, three. Montana, rural Montana, Brooklyn, where I live, which is Brownstone, Brooklyn, and the Jersey Shore. Three very different places. In my little Brownstone, Brooklyn neighborhood, new places are opening up left and right, which is really interesting. Like People are taking advantage of the cheaper rents, to shoot for their dreams, shoot for the moon and, you know, take a risk and open up a business. And that is part of what makes America interesting and great. Um, and I really applaud these people for taking the risk. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Lauren Young, a veteran financial journalist. She's covered personal finance for Smart Money, where we were initially uh, 20 years ago. It was the magazine of the Wall Street Journal, which we're going to get to at Business Week. And now she's at Reuters. Uh, you've been editor at Reuters Money and Reuters Wealth, and now you're editor for Special Projects. Uh, tell me about, I mean, this is something that we could not have imagined back when we were lamenting NASDAQ 5000 at the turn of the century, but what do you, how do you get your head around things like GameStop and AMC and this echo chamber of retail investors on the internet coming up with concepts and bidding up stocks that don't have the fundamentals to them, and then these companies then turn around and gladly take that market infusion and sell stock. It seems kind of stranger than fiction. It seems like it's going to be in an upcoming Jason Zweig book about the follies of this era. The meme, the meme stocks. I kind of love it. I love like the Reddit community rallying around a company, making things happen. There's something incredibly democratic about that. I mean, it doesn't make any financial sense, but it's still, I don't know. I love, I, I like spirit and spunk. Um, what do I make of it? I mean, what do I make of Bitcoin? What do I, there's so many things. What do you want to make of? Yeah, there's always something funky going on in the financial markets, Robin. Well, let's and- let's let's sketch let's sketch AMC for example. AMC last year, if you could have come up with an exogenous shock like something like this, people, I'm not going to say like the plague. It was the plague. They were avoiding movie theaters, and Netflix and Hulu and others are having their moment because. It's the true moment of of streaming at home. Hollywood Warner is rele- releasing straight to the streaming platforms. These guys have fixed and variable costs. They have all sorts of debt issues with landlords and everything. And yet the stocks run up by a hyperbolic amount because people on Reddit are romancing some sort of parallel reality because they don't want to see hedge funds punish it. They run up the stocks. How does that even work, Lauren? I mean, it's called a market you darling. Say- it doesn't make any sense. It works because there's always money to be made. You know, there's always somebody who's going to try to move the market. There's always somebody who's going to try to corner something. It makes no sense, Robin. It really doesn't. But you know, there are people who have figured out a way to game this, literally game the system. So. I wish I could give you like a very clear answer, but it's smoke and mirrors at the end of the day, but people can still make money from smoke and mirrors and big screens if you want to, you know, continue the metaphor. And also the other thing is, you know, we're recovering markets and the the frothiest of the tech boom, no company made it to a trillion dollars at the turn of the century, not Microsoft, not Cisco, you know, some of the darlings of, of that era. Uh, now you Remember have five JDS or s- Uniphase, like I'm JDS about- Uniphase, <laughs> and some like I was well, looking- the PetSmart, you know, the whole PetSmart thing, like that was the our time. Robin. That was our day in the sun. 
But you know, you look at the the benchmark Standard and Poor's 500 index, and now, and I'm sure you know, you, you talk to people about this right now. It's it's weighting in technology is something approaching 27, percent and I think that's a record high. Does that give? I mean, it's a little strange. If you're buying an index, you're trying to be agnostic. You say, I want to own all of the great 500 companies of America. You weren't signing up for a high growth, high PE multiple tech fund. Do you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, but then there's like a part of me that is waiting for the, you know, the the satirical movie that says that Jeff Bezos, you know, engineered the pandemic. I am not. This is not fact, by the way. I'm just saying, you know, a fictionalized Jeff account. Bezos, the the founder of of Amazon. Correct. Uh, you know, like who's who's prospered in this time? These you mentioned all the tech companies. They've done pretty well because their businesses have done well. Because what are we relying on right now? This this very second, Robin. Because I am sitting in my apartment in, in Brooklyn rather than at the beautiful NPR studio in Bryant Park. We're relying on technology. We need it. And um, and there's so much of it. And it's we would not be where we are in, in the pandemic in terms of productivity gains if it were not for technology. It couldn't happen. In, indeed, Amazon, which was one of the darlings of dot-com bubble 1.0, which crashed in spectacular fashion 20 years ago, uh, is now worth $1.74 trillion. I've asked the meaning of life question of other people. What exactly is Amazon, Lauren? Yes, it's a retailer, but it's a logistics company. It's a cloud services company that provides much of the the backbone kind of uh, plumbing, whatever you want to call it, of the internet, things that we stream, uh, services to other retailers. It owns Whole Foods. The CEO is out there launching rockets. He personally owns the Washington Post. Is it just kind of a Rorschach for, you know what they called the uh, Steve Jobs, the the late CEO of Apple? They said that he had this reality distortion force field with anybody that he dealt with. He could just kind of, you know, will his vision and people would buy it. Is is that the case with Jeff Bezos? Well, I don't think also, they're really tracking. Forgot, I don't know if you mentioned the entertainment aspect of it, too. Um, oh, I totally forgot. Yeah, yeah they have streaming. MGM. So, they have all this streaming, which is not. And if you look at their income statement, it's not like it's broken out and they're like, oh, aha, you only have a 2% margin in retail. Nope. It's all good. It's taken in as as the ultimate conglomerate. And I, I for my, for one, can't understand it. I mean, Zappos, IMDb, yep. you know, if you were to break out the accordion and everything this company owns, it, it really seems like it's the conglomerate for this confusing era. And by the way, I've, I think I've been a consumer for like half of those Amazon products. Not the Rockets yet, but maybe. Um, I, it, that is an amazing, you know, conglomerate. And that's not that at the end of the day, isn't it is a tech company in terms of the underpinnings of everything it does. But all of those businesses aren't strictly tech, right? So uh, what is it? Is it the next best thing? Is it the next big thing? I don't know. You haven't mentioned Microsoft either. And I, you know, again, in my- And Microsoft in my, is wait, worth even more. Can I just get into my revenge more. theory? My yeah, revenge theory yeah. of, of like, wh- why did all this happen? You know, I'm waiting for the satire version of how have I spent all my time on Microsoft Teams, commuting with, with, communicating with my colleagues. I actually like it quite, it's much better than email, but, um, you know, Zoom, Outlook, all of these things- um, LinkedIn, all of, you know, I, I'm spending my day on all of these different apps and, uh, you know, I know, look, I know you don't cover tech and Microsoft and everything, but Microsoft is worth $2.25 trillion. This had the lost decade of the aughts where it kept trying to buy back stock and issue dividends. It completely whiffed on the smartphone to this day. Nobody has a windows phone, 
really a handful of Surface tablets you see out there. But the pandemic has been great for remote work, for cloud computing, for restoration of kind of Office 365. Lauren, I haven't bought a Microsoft product in at least a decade. I mean, as a Mac user, and yet suddenly it's worth... I mean, two and a half trillion dollars, multiples of what it was worth at the turn of the century at its frothy peak. Um, and then and then there's Google, there's Facebook, there's you know Netflix, which is worth more than these media conglomerates. Uh, it, it's really kind of unprecedented when we used to be holding our lips and waiting for a company to break seven or eight hundred billion dollars in market value. Now you have a club of five or six that's worth more than a trillion, some worth more than two trillion. It's... It is so unbelievable. If you literally, if we went back to our our aughts selves and said this is what the future is going to look like, would you have believed it twenty years ago, thirty years ago? Would you have believed what you're seeing now? I try to break it apart with various guests that we have on. The onset of this pandemic, and I believe we had you on back in March of 2020, and there was so little visibility in the fog and haze of this crisis. It was a financial crisis. It was a healthcare crisis. It was a parenting crisis. If I told you then, you know, buy tech stocks and buy real estate and buy speculative assets and let's talk in 20 months, what would you have said to me? <laughs> I would have said you're crazy. That's what I would have said. I don't think I would have believed it. I I don't I wouldn't have had the visibility for it. I just don't I didn't at that time. I think when I talked to you in March, I had been in um Switzerland in Davos for, for Reuters covering it and kind of, you know, it was the very early days of the pandemic. And I don't, you know, we knew it was coming. We were talking about it. We were being a little bit careful while we were there. But people were mushing rooms from all over the world. I swear, I got, you know, I think I got COVID while I was there. So a global pandemic is not anything that really was in my realm of possibility, honestly. Nope. And what's the amazing thing is I talk to doctors, I talk to people in finance, and all these people who, who, I mean, yeah, gosh, if you went to medical school, there was barely a day spent on 1918 and 1919. Supply chain people, which are in serious demand right now, you saw that everything was skewed from hog trotters, which I know you don't eat, to paper towels and toilet paper and pickles and chicken breasts. And we're still feeling those things at the market, which, again, to underscore, is amazing to me that this is by no means finished business, COVID and the Delta variant and the various other variants. And yet we have markets and risk assets at all-time highs. So what do you think is next? I know that you hate it when I interview you, but since I am a I journalist love it when you. I love it when you interview me. I wonder, Lauren, when there's going to be a reckoning for risk. It seems like we forgot what fear was. There was this very, very brief 30% drawdown, which was terrifying over a few days in March of 2020. And then after that, just how many record highs have we had in the 20 months since? It's it is truly astounding. I mean, we will have some volatility, obviously, and we've seen volatility. But there's, I mean, what goes up must come down. That's just Murphy's law, right? So it's just a question of when and how far and how fast and how long. And remind me, when are you set to go back to the office? Everything has been punted now to the turn of the year. For us. It's been to the turn of the year. I mean, it's we're a global organization, so it's different for different places. But for Times Square, and we're not expecting, you know, the back to work is actually January now, pushed back from September. Now, if I can get into some private detail, do you have the possibility? You said you were well traveled to New Jersey, 
Um, used to spend, I think, you know, uh, the spring parts in, in Miami Beach, in Montana and other places. Did you and your hubs, especially in that you're going to be empty nesters soon, consider arbitraging moving to one of these cheaper cities because you're going to be working remotely anyway? Well, we can't. My husband actually works in a very specific niche industry that is specific to New York. It's called Broadway. Um, so we are not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, that said, you know, I do think about, you know, kind of splitting up my time. And one thing the pandemic has given me the luxury to do is spend more time in New Jersey. And I was uh, very lucky to be in rural Montana this past summer in Western Montana. And it was a very, very different place, but um, just so great to experience something else, uh, you know, compared to the big city. So Um, I don't mean to sound like such a city slicker, but in Western Montana, you had sufficient bandwidth and everything to do your job just as effectively as you're doing it in Brooklyn, a few miles from Times Square? Not 100%. We actually had to like install new Wi-Fi where we were, Um, but it wasn't bad. We, you know, the thing about Montana is because of the mountains, you lose connectivity very easily. So unless you're in a fixed place with good Wi-Fi, you're kind of screwed. Like in all the national parks, there's no connectivity in Glacier. You don't get a signal, which is kind of also glorious to be off the grid a little bit because I was on vacation for part of it. But you can't expect, you know, to have the same level of um, connectivity. Nope. So the the, the regional bell, you know, companies and, and fiber optic companies and cable companies haven't sufficiently wired up this mountainous terrain? No, my son is very obsessed with um, satellite uh, connectivity and Wi-Fi. He thinks that that's the future. <laughs> it's, you know, mountains block things, so I don't know about that. But um, I feel for people in rural areas based on, you know, just not having a signal and trying to do things in the car. Like you can't look up something. You can't look up like where's the nearest gas station if there's no connection, which is really weird. Full disclosure. Stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rave about us, and recommend the show to friends and family. Additionally, you can catch us on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. We are on WERA up in Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., and KPQQ out in Ventura, California. Uh, Holler if you two would like us on your air. Full disclosure, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Lauren Young, veteran financial journalist. She's at Reuters, where she used to be money and wealth editor. Now she's special projects editor. Lauren, you mentioned your son, who's in the process of shopping for colleges. He starts in a year, correct? That is correct. Well, he may be doing a gap here, Robin, because in New York City, he's a public school student. And the cutoff here in New York is December, which most places it's September or earlier. So he'll be very young when he goes to college. So he might do some kind of gap year program, take a a year, study something, be somewhere abroad. If the world allows him to do that, maybe learn Spanish, which I know you speak fluently, and Mm. then go back, go to college. But he'll apply and then defer likely. But we'll see. We'll see how things play out. So I want to have a kind of a preliminary exit interview with you in that you've been called on TV for thousands of times and radios to talk about 529s and educations and planning for college. And tell me what you kind of thought 
T minus 18, you know, 18 years ago when we met in, in, in 2004 when you were a new mother, and versus the reality of what it is now, what you knew, what you wish you had known, and how things have, have changed, especially with the various shocks that have happened to education over the past 15 years. Well, I, I feel honestly that I hit the jackpot here in New York City in terms of public school. We just got really lucky. We moved to a good neighborhood with good schools. He actually ended up in a great middle school because middle school is the dark years of life. Ugh, I would not want to go back yeah. into middle school again. And then he luckily got into this amazing public high school. So, you know, I tell him he's our cheapest child. I'm a stepmom. I have two uh, stepsons who both went to a private school that they were very fortunate to be able to attend. But I mean, when you add up the cost of what it was in New York City over, you know, a 12-year education times two, it is not a small number. So, you know, I'm glad that we stuck that route. There are things maybe I would have done a little bit differently in terms of his education. But, you know, I'm also seeing because of who I am and, um, and the community that I'm in, I do see the inequality to all of it, like the gaming of the system and these tutors to prep them for SATs and college counselors and just the business itself of that and how much money people spend. Um, and it's, it is not fair. It is really, really not fair. And I realized that, you know, no one could have predicted the racial unrest that we saw last, you know, a year ago, um, from June and May. Um, and, and what impact that would have on colleges, universities, the pandemic, throwing out all of the standardized testing and schools really trying to truly not just, you know, talk the talk, but truly open up their rosters to people of all different ethnicities, income levels, um, and to truly try to diversify their student body. I don't think I would have ever predicted that. And it's kind of exciting, but I got, you know, I have a, a white Jewish kid, you know, like he'll apply to schools, but you know, he's, it's. Talk, well, talk to me about the great thinking, the, the new thinking about the great big public universities. You went to that massive public university in the middle of Pennsylvania. Hashtag and we are these Penn guys, State, yes. And so they've had they've had quite a decade coming out of 2008 and 2009 when the likes of U Michigan and UNC and UVA and, you know, especially Cal Berkeley, Cal um, UCLA and the likes got this deluge of people who wanted to take advantage of the lower tuition, especially if you were in state. And we're getting also elite out of state applicants who were giving them second looks when there was maybe less of a fetishizing about going to a private school for $60,000, $65,000 a year and being saddled with all this debt for the rest of your life. There definitely has been a rethink over the past 10, 12 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I went to a large public university. You didn't. Um, I did go to a, um, a large private university for graduate school, but I love the experience of being at a big state school. And I would love that for him if, if that's something, you know, but I'm not, whatever he chooses and whatever, well, you know, we'll weigh our options. We'll see where, where we end up. But, you know, uh, our friend, one of our colleagues from Business Week had previously or after Business Week done um, research at the Wall Street Journal looking at um, the kinds of schools that recruiters like to hire from. And who do you think was number one on that list, Robin? What was it, Penn State? Of course, because people know how to navigate a large bureaucracy, and that's not unlike working at a big company. So there is something to be said about having to figure it out and not ha literally have having it handed to you on a silver platter. That said, I mean, an education is an education, and people should just, you know, take advantage of it. I don't love the idea as a personal finance expert of walking out of school with, you know, tons of debt. I just think 
it holds you back in so many ways. Um, but I also realize that, you know, some degrees are more valuable than others. And we know that the Ivy is obviously for people who can't afford it. You know, it's actually one of the best deals out there because they really do try to, they have such big endowments that they really try to help students um, attract them by offering them tuition help. So there's something to be said for that too. You know, it's true. It, actually, I have friends who were like offered a spot at Penn State and a spot at Princeton, but they chose Princeton because it actually was better off economically because they could get more aid. So uh, w- without, you know, divulging too much or jinxing him, what's your son's thinking right <laughs> now? Is he ready to pounce? Is he ready to defer? Obviously, it's not an ideal time to start a university. I just, you know, I do occasional guest lectures at the University of Richmond and people are masked up and there's social distancing rules and limits to the number of people you can have in attendance. Uh, a lot of people seem to be opting for for passes. And there was a big Wall Street Journal article recently to this effect that boys especially are are sitting it out. Yeah, I don't, he's not one, he doesn't want to sit it out. We've already gone to look at some schools. I don't know, Robin, having grown up in Miami, if you've been back to the South anytime soon, but apparently there is no pandemic there and kids are just, you know, going about their business <laughs> like there isn't one. Um, and lots of schools have been having classes in person. Um, I think hopefully a year from now or two years from now when he does um, actually step foot on a college campus, that th- things might be a little bit different. But I have friends who have with kids at University of Michigan right now, and they are having quite the fun time, you know, football, tailgates, parties, classes, you know, it doesn't feel so pandemic-y. Will that change? I don't know. Full disclosure, we're talking to Lauren Young of Reuters. Lauren, I have to ask you, and we get into a little bit of wonky territory here, but on on the the, the humble and, and humbling power of compounding, of which Ooh. our late great friend oh. Jack Bogle used to lecture us about, if I gave you, you know, $10,000 or somebody gave you $10,000 when your son was born, let's say 17 years ago, and that was put in uh, an index fund to compound at whatever it did, 9, 9.2% a year, that money would have doubled every eight or nine years or so. How did you avail yourself of the power of compounding for your I son? I did for example, exactly was he what you said. 529%. Uh, 100%. 529 ETFs. He's his bar mitzvah money went into the market. Um, and he's getting his statements mm-hmm. and he's looking at them. Um, he's like, he's a very well diversified portfolio. Um, the joke, you know, Robin, is that he was Warren Buffett for Halloween, you know, when he was a little kid. He's and he did one of those um Myers Briggs type tests this past year, which said he should be a financial analyst an accountant, uh, work in investment banking or asset management. It was really funny because, you know, he's... <laughs> so did he have a, did he have an allowance with you? To what extent yes. is he kind of fascinated about what you Yeah, cover? no, totally. You, I mean, how he do you, was you know, always, has always been really interested in money, more so than I am in some ways. Um, has... So throw out some throw out some pro tips for our fellow mother listeners out there, our prospective mothers, uh, mothers of very young children who don't know how to mothers, broach the subject Robin, of an allowance. Not just mothers, fathers too. Fathers too, yeah. Um, well, my pro tips are just talk to your kids about money. It's really important. I'm literally sitting in my home office right now. My favorite book about money and kids is written by our friend Ron Lieber, who wrote an amazing book called The Opposite of Spoiled. And it's all about raising grateful kids. And it's just, it's really, um, it's very great practical advice. And he talks to a lot of experts. My favorite anecdote is he had a dad come home literally with like 
all of the cash equivalent of what that family needed for the month to cover their mortgage, their car payments, their insurance. You know, he put the piles of money on the dining room table and said, here's the money and here's how we allocate it. And it was a very visual thing for kids. Kids don't get to see cash. They see plastic. Well, no, unless you grew up, unless you grew up in Miami. But I digress. Uh, Oh, go ahead. Hotel Scarface. Go ahead. No, Hotel Scarface, I was going to say. But um, I lo- I just let you have to talk to your kids about money. It's a family thing, money. It's really important. And and college, too, and what you can afford. And I've been saving for college since my son was born. Every single month, I've been putting money in a 529. You know, it's a pair of shoes or, you know, put the $50 in Leo's <laughs> college fund. So on the other end of this, talk talking about the opposite of spoiled and Ron Lieber, how do you worry about him? Suppose, let's let's game this out. He gets significant financial aid, gets to go to the college of his dreams. You don't want to turn around and at age 22 say, oh, by the way, son, you have something approximating a trust fund. Have at it. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. Um, that money would be for a down payment, or you know, if 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 we're lucky enough to have excess money. By the way, Robin, my dad. I'm the oldest of four kids. My dad was a butcher. He saved money for all of us. He invested in the markets, and I think that's part of it too. Is I, my dad would always talk to us about the stocks that he bought for us. And because I went to a state school, I actually walked away from college with, you know, $10,000 um, that my dad gave me, and I've invested that money. That's actually the foundation of my financial account at Vanguard that I was, um, you know, which is looking pretty good these days. You know, I've put money in it other ways too, and I've rolled over an IRA from all of the jobs we've had together. But at the end of the day, you know, my son knows all of these things. I talk to him about it. I don't necessarily show him my bank statements, but he gets it. And I think I think it's really important. Like I said, I think just think it's important to talk to your kids about money. You shouldn't. It's not. It's people are more willing to talk about sex than they are about money. But- now here's another thing that the late Jack Bogle and and others actually in the value investing school just say: the pretty much the best thing you can do, and it's beautiful in its simplicity, and it's cheaper than it's ever been. I mean, if you'd imagine brokerage firms no longer charging commissions, I mean that was the bread and butter of financial advertising. Uh, in the publications that you and oh I started Oh my gosh, at. Robin, but I can't tell you, can you how get... many best and worst discount brokers and full service brokers surveys I did back in our time at Smart Money. Back in the day. But 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 stick with me here. Anybody can get access to the market's you know foremost measuring stick, which is the S&P 500. You could buy it for effectively no cost basis. You don't have to have $5,000 or call a broker and pay a, a mandated $70, $100 brokerage fee anymore. It's more accessible than it's ever been. They'll even sell you fractional shares for a kid if you want to teach a, a kid how to collect coins and, and, and maybe transfer them into stocks and track the components of the S&P 500. But, 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 is the S&P 500, the 500 most representative companies according to Standard & Poor's in the United States, many of which have a ton of sales abroad, such as Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble and, I don't know, General Motors and John Deere, is that the best we can do? Is that? No. Do you see what no, I'm saying? The, or should you try to invest more market, aggressively? The Vanguard total stock market has always been the better proxy um, for for getting a piece of the global growth picture. Uh, but that hasn't worked for a while. It has been all United States. After the United States had its lost decade between 2000 and 2009, uh, and that was a great decade for emerging markets. They had a gangbusters decade, but then they had a lost decade in the decade that just ended. Yes. But I'm just saying over the long haul, is that a better play Look going forward? 
Is it a more global economy well, or is it a more when you US talk economy? To, when you talk to someone like a Jack Bogle or you talk to a Tom Gaynor or a Markel who we've had on the show and he asks you something, is Honda, a, is it a US company or is it a Japanese yeah. company? Think about yeah. it. It's like one of those cosmic questions. Toyota. Is Coca-Cola yep. a U.S. company or is it a, a an international company? You don't need to buy a better mousetrap than the S&P 500. True or false? Well, I I like the the bigger mousetrap, I'll be honest with you. I I have I have problems with the S&P 500 because it is still very narrow and as you mentioned, so tech heavy. Um and just not I don't think it gives you a piece of everything. But yes, a lot of the companies in the S&P 500 are big global companies. There's no question about that, most of them. Um, but I still, I feel like there's more. I feel like there's more out there than than those 500 companies. So, I mean, without plugging a company or anything, how can, can it be accomplished with one, two, three, four ETFs? Is it still pretty simple, especially that costs are no concern? I think it is. I mean, I, you know, I've always been like, and you keep talking about Jack Bogle. I was literally thinking about Jack the other day. I really miss him. I really, really miss his, Lauren, how you doing, Lauren? Um, I don't know. I just miss his wisdom and his plain, like, you know. No BS. Attitude. And he was so right. The way Vanguard and the index fund were vindicated after the great crash of 08, the way this company, the assets went swelling from $2 trillion, $3 trillion, $4 trillion. And this idea, I've said it before, just be the market. Don't try to beat the market. You know, we used to go, we're going to get to this in a few minutes, but we used to work at magazines. That magazines. Were mutual we worked at magazines. Active, I mean, magazines, period. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Lauren Young, veteran personal finance journalist. She's now with Reuters. She was previously at Business Week and Smart Money, the magazine of the Wall Street Journal, the late great magazine of the Wall Street Journal. I think it folded in 2014. I'm not sure, but that's where I want to take us back, Lauren Young. The turn of the century. There was actually competing thick personal finance magazines. Money Magazine, which was a profit center for the you know Time Inc. You, you, people would actually buy these things at supermarket counters alongside Tic Tacs and Twix bars and everything and look for mutual funds and stock tips. What was it? A bi-weekly? And Smart Money, which was supposed to be a smarter version of it, the magazine of the Wall Street Journal. Can you imagine that we worked at a monthly that was recommending stocks and mutual funds? I was, it's funny. I was also thinking about that the other day. I was thinking about our former colleague, Jer Jersey Gilbert, who unfortunately passed today, passed away and was in charge of um, all of our stock picking and investments and research and uh, just the amount of time and effort. We were, I, a company, Robin, that I recommended in Smart Money was a company called Globix. Do you remember that company? Mm. Uh, I can't seem to remember it. <laughs> um, they were servers, you know. Uh, it's just, it's oh, just yes. funny, like, thinking because I, I was driving by where their headquarters were the other day in lower Manhattan. It's right across from the prison. Um, and thinking about the prison where I think they held Jeffrey Epstein, thinking about that company and what happened to it and all the people who work there and what is that space now, like, you know, and the evolution of that. And all the stocks that I picked for smart money, and who was I to be picking stocks at the end of the day, really? Um, but it was fun to do the work, and it was fun to see things go up or down, you know, successes and failures. It was fun. But imagine imagine, imagine that now where you're in the minute of, I mean, even what sounded the death knell, the era of the desktop where you could go on and get Yahoo Finance, semi-real-time quotes and everything. Now we're all carrying high-powered computers and streaming devices in the palms of our, our hands. The fact that these personal finance and investing magazines existed just a few years ago. They're gone. I, Money Magazine is they gone. They make no I sense. Don't know if Kips, they, I mean, Kiplinger's uh, 
there's still some form of investment. And MarketWatch, obviously, in, it, it, it uh, absorbed a lot of the smart money kind of content and, and focus. And then Barron's, of course, has always been around and hasn't gone away. But yes, you are right, Robin. Those things, I can't imagine that they existed, but they couldn't exist in a real-time world unless, you know, they're only for an iPad or whatever. It just, it makes no sense because everything is obsolete the minute you write it. Not just obsolete, but there are hedge funds that are paid so much money, buku fees, you know, 2 and 20, 3 and 30, 4 and 40, to track microscopic movements, X versus Y, all sorts of variations that you and I could not imagine if you read about, for example, James Simons and Renaissance. But I'll tell you or, what I miss. Or Citadel. I'll tell you what I miss, Robin. I miss the profiles. You know, we just celebrated the 20th, celebrated is the wrong word. We just honored the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I wrote a story for Smart Money about David Alger, who was the head of Fred Alger Management, who perished. Fred Alger which, Management. Um, perished with yes. many, you know, 30 plus colleagues. They were on the- Way, 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 way high up in the 93rd World 93rd floor of uh, one World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. And the, he was the fun man. We, we anointed him. I'll use that's a Robin World word, anointed. We anointed him fund manager of the decade of the aughts because he had, well, actually it was the nineties. He was the fund manager of the 1990s. He had the best performing mutual fund. It was the Spectra fund. And it was kind of a small mid cap fund that focused on, you know, interesting companies. And David, like uh, David Aldrich wouldn't exist today. His, what he did feels obsolete to me. There's no, but he was such an interesting person and he had interesting stories and it was, he was such an amazing person to profile and he was such a personality. There were so many personalities. Like, can you name any fund managers today aside from Will Danoff? Well, yeah, I, I, I can. Kathy Wood of ARC. Everyone, uh, everyone uh, Kathy, talks Daddy about Wood. Kathy. Kathy Wood, Kathy Wood, Kathy Wood. Is there anyone else besides Kathy Wood? So here's Kathy she's Wood. the CEO. She's the CEO and CIO of ARC Investment, investment management firm, has been a go-go a, a backer of a lot of the hottest companies. What was it? Uh, Tesla and others. It said, uh, would receive considerable media attention in 2018 after she stated on CNBC that she believed Tesla stock could reach a price of $4,000 in five years, a 1,100% increase from its price at the time. And it reached her target on a split-adjusted basis nearly two years early. So there are still yeah, heroes. There's black men. There's you know, people. Think about 30 years ago. What was it? Peter Lynch, yeah. right? Peter Lynch. It was it was a very – Fidelity had all of these hotshot people that everyone tracked their every word. Um, but – Kathy Wood has 1.1 million followers on Twitter. She routinely blocks people, I'm told. She is the closest thing we have to a star in this era. But it's an anachronism because, as you know, when these fund managers do super well for a streak, they're, they're wooed to the riches of kind of hedge fund land. Yeah. And then they don't do well. And then, like, think about... You don't hear bright. from them anymore. I know. It's really interesting. Like, just the trajectory of... Bill Gross at PIMCO or all the Janice people. Do you remember Janice and who they were? Janice, that's right. There's just all these fun companies that we used to talk about all the time. I just, I mean, I pulled, I'm just like pulling that out of the recesses of my mind right now. <laughs> you know, she quoted something to go back to our other conversation uh, from an, uh, an analyst at ARC. Based on our calculations, the average Robinhood user, Robinhood is the ultimate retail platform, has outperformed the market. In four out of five past quarters, for example, in the second quarter of 2021, Robinhood users earned 
13% in net returns on their deposits. The S&P total return in the same quarter was 8%. It really seems to be kind of giddy times for the individual, for the retail investor, the likes of which we thought, to be very honest with you, would not return for the longest time, the last time, the kind of a, a, a euphoria of this proportion Get the, for sure, there's sizzle, there's giddiness, but I think the institutional investor is the one that's really raking it in. <laughs> I mean, what a great time to be an institutional investor and be able to throw your weight around in, I mean, in ways that we never saw before. I have a wild card for you in that effectively, you know, you kind of walked into my next question. Throwing your weight around, you hear about universities disinvesting from carbon, from fossil fuels that... Here's a problem. If a lot of people are in index funds where you can't pick and choose and exclude, you have to hold the entire market, warts and all, uh, drillers, refiners, uh, uh, you know, oil spills and nat gas flaring and all. How can you have uh, uh, universities and the like investing and telling you at the same time to divest from these companies? One word, Robin. It's called proxy. Um, you know, proxy voting to make the companies think differently about what they're doing. I mean, granted, those businesses are going to exist until something else can replace them, but they're not going away. So can you help make them better companies? Can they be smarter about the energy and resources that they are taking from this planet? Um, Can they be smarter about their water use? Can they be smarter about their employees and how they treat them and, you know, the composition of their boards, all of those things? I do think we haven't really seen big institutions reach their even basic potential, but they could. They could could do it. Here's the irony. You have Robinhood users, not Robinhood users, and people on Reddit chats effectively ganging up and propping up very weak players like AMC and GameStop. You know, if if RC Cola was a publicly oh, traded stock, I could RC get out Cola. there and rally RC you Cola on so GameStop. Much. But the largest, the largest uh, institutional holders on the planet, including Vanguard and the ETF providers, they are they effectively powerless to, you know, decide this this I, I guess humanity deciding civilization deciding issue in divestment from from carbon. They're not powerless. That's they have the they question. have the power. It's just unrealized. I I think they really could be doing something with it. They just have chosen so far not to. And that's what I mean. I think there's a lot of potential there to do more to do better. I mean, is it going to? Nothing's going to change overnight. But they really could be pushing companies to to do better. You know, two of the tiny footnotes from 2020, which I will never forget, is 2010, he saw two very important companies booted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the Dow 30, the venerable blue chips of America, Exxon, which was unthinkable, kind of the the, the golden child of Standard Oil, which was broken up more than a century ago, and Pfizer, which was in the process of releasing this vaccine that would kind of save civilization from this pandemic. And it just blows my mind that that you know that kind of happened, and so many other things were in the news that we kind of moved on. I think you know it's funny that you say that because I haven't thought about that um, in that way. But you're right. And uh, how could we get? You know, can Pfizer get back in? What what, what is the <laughs> when, when do you get a recount? <laughs> well, no. I, I wonder about I wonder I wonder about these things because the Dow in previous years, like oh, let's add Cisco, let's add HP, and they were too late to add. 
the likes of Apple, right, or Goldman Sachs. And Amazon, I believe, is still not in the Dow. McDonald's is in there, but Starbucks isn't in there. But then again, I mean, the Dow is cited on the news. Maybe the Dow would be much higher right now if those components, those very hot components were added. I mean, Tesla, for example, is worth multiples of General Motors and Ford. I think it's worth more than all three or four of the biggest car makers combined. Um, and that's still not in the top 30. So a lot of a lot of stuff happening in this era of kind of swollen valuations and swollen market caps and and tech not being this dominant, I think, at least since the turn of As the As a footnote, a friend of mine, you know, you can't get a Tesla. There are waiting lists everywhere. She literally like talked her way into one by driving to a dealer and taking, you know, really being pushy, but also get it, you know, getting one from some another lot. You have to like take it, whatever it is, you just have to take it. You don't get to pick and choose and customize. But she can't get a, a charging station. They're, they're, they're back ordered forever. I mean, you can just charge it by plugging it in, but the fast charge, you can't get them because they're not, they're not around. They're not available. So, I mean, you know, it's we're in the nascent days of of electric vehicles, I think. And um, but, you know, I think my next car will be an electric car. I have a Subaru right now. Um, I can't imagine that that uh, I won't buy an electric car next time around. But what are you driving these days? I have a Subaru as well with a hybrid. And my next car, if I have two nickels to rub together, will be an electric yeah. car. But the range and price matrix has to be far better than than what it is right now. But you know what? I don't have to worry about picking or choosing or settling or anything with Lauren Young by way of this tortured transition. It's always a joy to have you on my air. I've always loved podcasting with you. I've loved working with you. As I tell people, you are like my investing big sister who held my hand at both Smart Money and Business Week uh, near the turn of the century. As you should know, you are always welcome on this show, Lauren Well, Young. thank you, Robin Farzad. And if it's okay with you, I'm just going to give a little plug. I currently am doing a personal finance newsletter for Reuters, and you can follow me on LinkedIn to subscribe. Lauren Young on LinkedIn, please do follow. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at linkfulldradio.com. Gosh, we are on Apple TV. We are on all podcatchers. I'm sure you can even find us on Friendster. And we are also on Low Power Radio in Arlington, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Ventura, California, Asheville, North Carolina. Holler if you two would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>